0: Thanks, Dave. Morning, everyone. Uh, lucky to see everyone. Why don't you um, grab a Bible or a phone, open it up to Second Samuel chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Second Samuel chapter 12. Um, I think I mentioned. I think I mentioned last week that we're doing like the David and Bathsheba story over three weeks. Does anyone remember that? <clears throat> so this is week two. If you weren't here last week. Let me give you a little bit of a, um, a catch-up thing. I'm not going to go the whole of life of David. Um, basically, what we started looking at last week was, was one of David's most well-known stories, the misadventure with Bathsheba. Um, I won't go through the whole thing again, but he's, he's sort of supposed to be off at war. He's not. He ends up uh, sleeping with his neighbor's wife and then has this elaborate cover-up um, thing that involves trying to um, bring her husband back and and get him drunk and, so he can s- sleep with his wife and cover up a pregnancy because it, it turns out that she's pregnant. It doesn't go according to plan, so he ends up getting the guy executed on the battlefield um, and, and, th- and then takes Bathsheba as, as his wife um, and thinks that um, now everything is sorted, like great plan, cover-up, mission accomplished. No one's going to find out about this. Yeah, she's pregnant. There's going to be a baby, but we can explain that away. You know how that's sometimes explained away, you know, like, uh, oh, you, uh, how, how many months are you now? You became the wife when? We've seen that a few times. Um, and that, that's sort of what, where things are at the moment. David thinks he's got away with it, okay? His elaborate cover-up. And into Second Samuel chapter 12 we go. We're going to do this slightly differently. I'm going to read a bit, speak a bit, read a bit, speak a bit, read a bit, speak a bit. Sometimes I'm going to read one verse, and then I'm going to speak. Sometimes I'm going to read like 10 verses. So you need the Bible or the phone with you the whole time this morning. If you don't have anything like that, it'll be all on the screen behind me, I think. Um, and let's, uh, let's pray. Let me, let me pray again. I know Dave just prayed, but I feel like I need to pray again. Maybe you do as well after that introduction. Father, as we turn to your word again this morning, uh, we want to declare that we are we are needy people. Um, sometimes we feel this very acutely, and sometimes we're oblivious to it. But the truth remains that we we are needy people, and we have a need this morning. And our need is to hear from you. It's to sit together. Um, under the teaching, revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit that would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive from you and, and to see you as you are and to see ourselves as we are. We love your word. We love the fact that you speak. We love what you've recorded for us here. We, we've loved journeying through the life of David, and we pray as we come to your word again this morning, Father, We our hearts deep as desires that you would speak that you would speak and you would give us grace to hear, and grace to respond to what you are doing amongst us. We're so grateful to be a church family. We're so grateful to be together in person like this. What a, what a gift it is to be together like this. And so we look to you now. Place ourselves in your hands and say, Father, would you speak to us? Thank you that you're gracious, you're gentle, you're firm, you're convicting, you're encouraging. You're everything that our souls need this morning. Pray that you would come and do your work and your ministry amongst us because you love us and you long to glorify your own name in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Um, It says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's stop there. I did say we're going to have varying levels of reading. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. David didn't wake up one day and realize, you know what, what I've done is not so I, I need to sort this out, man. David blissfully trucking along in his own sin, unrepentant of what he's done. And if you if you pay no attention to much else this morning, um, I, my, my prayer, or if you're not awful, or anything, I pray that you go back and reread this passage multiple times. Because as I've spent um, so much time in this passage this week, this passage has made my soul absolutely sing. I've been in tears like so many times this week. Because this is a passage of absolutely astounding grace. Some of it is a bit hidden and muddled and we're going to see and wait our way through that. But this is, this is a passage that speaks to the heart of what God is like. Like few others. Here you have David, his, his man, God's man, his anointed king, who's had the biggest blowout of his life. It's the biggest mess that David has made. And what happens? The Lord sent Nathan to David. Friends, when you have screwed up beyond your own imagining, here is the confidence that you can draw from the Scriptures, is that God will pursue you. God will come after you. It's whether or not you will turn when he comes to you. But he's coming for you. He is the God who pursues. He doesn't wait, arms folded, for you to come, tail between your legs, with good reasons for why you did what you did. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who comes looking for you when you're not looking for him. There is no other God like that. No one treats you like that. We're going to read some of these scriptures later on. No one, there is no God like that. There is no God who treats us with that kind of grace. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb That he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and, not, and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. We don't know if David understood this immediately to be a parable, or if he thought it was a real um, life scenario, David, as the king, is like the highest judge in the, in the land, and he's called on to arbitrate on these things. So um, I think the natural reading of this is that David actually thinks that this is possibly a real um, scenario. And David is absolutely furious. He says, No, man, this can't, this can't happen. This guy deserves to what? He deserves to die. As the Lord lives, like he, I, I swear by the Lord. This is like a, not a, a suggestion. This is like a solemn oath he's making. This man deserves to die for what he has done. More of the grace of God. David doesn't hear in the story anything. He doesn't see himself at all. He's completely blind to the fact that there might be some overlap here. Uh, between this guy's story and sort of what's just happened, goes sailing straight past David at the moment. All he is is furious about this other guy who's done this uh, ridiculous thing. How could he possibly show such unkindness to this poor guy when he had all of this stuff and he didn't want to take from his own thing, so he takes this guy's little ewe that, you know, he hand-fed and slept with it in his arms. I mean, it sounds awful, this parable, sleeping with a sheep in your bed. Uh, I would have turned the thing into lamb chops a long time ago, but that's, that's why I didn't write the Bible. Um, and the point I want you to see in this is that I mentioned it in brief last week. It's so much easier for us to see sin in others than it is to see it in ourselves. And not just to see it, but to be annoyed by it. Man, we look down our noses at Everyone. We are experts at being self-righteous, even when we're not planning to be. It's not like we walk in and we gee ourselves up and it's like we walk out the door and say, I'm going, I'm going hunting for sin in other people's lives. I'm going to call it out. I'm, to, I'm just going to be, I feel like I'm in a judgy mood today. I'm putting my judgy pants on and I'm going to go out and I'm just going to, I'm going to dish out the judging all over the place. So you don't have to psych yourself up for it. It's just in you. We all have self-righteousness just woven into us. and we, It's so easy to see everyone else's imperfection. And it is so hard to see our own imperfection and be grieved by it. And be grieved by it. We can be grieved by the sins of others. It can get really up our nose. Especially, especially when people sin, other people sin differently to the way you sin. This is a particular Christian favorite thing. We have our select sins that people are not allowed to commit. And when they sin differently to the way we sin, we judge them. They are no longer welcome or entitled to any of God's grace, any of God's mercy, any, amongst God's people. They're in the category of unforgiven sinners. Our sin, though, is okay. If you want a reading recommendation, I recommend to you the book Respectable Sins. You are welcome. We may do a a sermon series on it at some point, so I'm not going to go more into it, but it will blow your mind about how respectable your sins are and how terrible everybody else's sins are. That's how we live. That's how we work. And it is a miracle. It is a miracle, and it is the mercy of God when you are able to see the, the condition of your own heart and your own sin and be grieved by it. And be grieved by it, and not be grieved by the sins of others. It's so hard for us. Um, when Claire, <clears throat> Claire has this pattern that uh, Pete Cropman, if you remember, Pete um, taught uh, the kids, his kids and our kids, this pattern of how to teach your kids how to pray. So you start with them, say, "God, I thank you that you are this. God, I thank you for," and then. Um, I think the third thing is I'm sorry for, you know, and every night Claire does this with Jono and sometimes I, I listen in because I'm interested and I'm nosy and sometimes I do it with him uh, and it's always, thank you God that you are this and there's lots of stuff you're loving, strong, powerful, blood, blah, 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 blah and uh, he's got great theology, it's great, some of it is amazing the one place where he always struggles is where we all struggle I'm sorry for He's got so many words in the prayer, up until I'm sorry for. And then, crickets. Look, lies there staring at the ceiling. What could I possibly be sorry for? Shoo. Scratches it. Just give it some more time. Anything you did today that you maybe, you know, wasn't great or... Shoo. More staring at the ceiling. Maybe when you told Dan to shut up and you know go down a hole. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, I. But you know why I said that? It's because he, you know, self-justifying kind of thing. Kids find it hard and we can laugh about it. We find it incredibly difficult to own up to what we see in our own lives and to call it what it is. Sin against our creator and be grieved by it. Verse 7, Nathan replied to David, You are the man. Ought to be a fly on the wall. David just goes off the deep end. There, this is ridiculous. This dude deserves to die. By the Lord. Nathan just calmly replies to him. I don't know what Tony uses with him. I kind of like imagine him wandering up to David and sort of poking him in the chest. I think they would make, if it was a visual, if they were making a documentary of this. I, God, they say, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Think about what God had done for David. David. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. Remember where God took David from? Looking after the sheep. The forgotten son. The one who didn't get to come to any of the parties, any of the festivals. When Samuel comes to anoint the next king, remember he didn't even get an invitation to the whole process. And has to ask Jesse, are these all the sons? No one else. And they have to go and fetch David from his menial task of shepherding. God takes him from that, a place of absolute obscurity, and makes him... The ruler and the king of God's people. He says through Nathan, I anointed you the king. I did this. I did this. I did this. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. What makes David's sin so grievous here is that it comes in the midst of an abundance of God's grace over his life. This is what makes sin um, so serious for us is that every sin that we commit is in the context of us choosing something else and not recognizing that God has been abundantly gracious to you. He has been more kind to you than you deserve. He has lavished your life with blessing upon blessing upon blessing and grace and grace and grace and faithful love every single day of your life. And then we choose to love something else. That's what makes sin so awful. And David is surrounded by absolute abundance and such blessing from God. And what does he do? He looks it in the face and he goes to find something else. He doesn't go sleep with one of his wives. He goes to take a wife from another man. And this is completely offensive to God. Verse 9, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. It's a particular choice of words that the Lord uses here that are very, very important for us to see. If we want to understand how our hearts work and what happens uh, when we sin. And it's the word uh, despised. Verse 9, why have you then despised the Lord's command? And you have a look again, it's there in verse 10. Um, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me. this This is God taking issue with David. He says, you did two things, David. You despised my ways. You despised my commands. And more than that, you despised me. You despised me. It's not just that you took this woman to be your wife and you put this guy to the sword um, through your instructions. You have despised me. Guys, all sin is a despising of God. It's a despising of God's ways and his laws, and of himself. That's what makes it so serious and offensive to him. God has said, this is who I am. He's revealed himself to us in his word and in the world. He's made it clear to us, this is who I am. This is my love for you. And this is how I want you to live. And every time we sin, what we do is this. We reject his love for us. We reject him, and we choose something else. We despise him, and we love something else. That's what makes it offensive to God. Sometimes people will say like, you know, why is God making such a big deal about sin? Why does God seem so uptight, particularly in the the Old Testament? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross for sin? You know, God just seems like an angry God. It's, It's not that he's angry. It's that our sin is so grievous. We have despised him and we have rejected him. And we continue to do this. The grace party is coming. Stay with me. I can see some of you are like, holy cow, this is heavy going. Like we get and get there. But before you can have a grace party, before you can have a grace party, you need to have your eyes opened to just how much trouble we're in. Just how grievous what we do. This afternoon, friends, this afternoon, probably for many of us, before we leave this place, you're going to commit some type of sin. You will despise the Lord again. That's how wide you are for that, how on autopilot we are. And it leaves us so desperately in need of the abundance of God's mercy and grace. He despised the Lord. Verse 11 this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. One of the things that you can't escape as you read this narrative is that sin has consequences. And it's something that we don't we don't like to talk about in church and amongst Christians. I suppose depending on, on your background of church, maybe you've heard this more. But you know, there's, a, there's a spectrum where you have some people who, like, sin has consequences and that's all you ever hear. You never hear anything of grace. And on the other end of the spectrum, all you hear is grace. Grace, grace, Jesus loves you. The apple are. it's all luck. you know, Jesus went to the cross, so everything is now hunky-dory forever. And the, the balanced teaching of the scriptures is this, that yes, there is grace. Yes, God does forgive. God does cleanse. God does give you a million chances, not a second chance. But there are consequences to our sin. That's why God says don't do it in the first place, because there's consequences. not because God is mean or vindictive, because there are consequences when you reject him. We don't, we don't fail to see this in normal life. I have made a covenant with Claire as my wife to be faithful to her as long as God gives me breath. If I violate that covenant, there are consequences. If I act in a way that's not faithful to that covenant to her. I don't know why I'm pointing at that chair because she's not there. I don't know where she is, but I imagine her sitting there. Huh? Oh, there she is. Oh, You're hiding, love. Can't use you as an illustration anymore. Hey, Jono's also here. Hey, (laughs) Jono. He's short. Can't see him. Hey, buddy. Where was I? Getting distracted. If I violate the covenant, there are consequences to that. It's a broken relationship. It's the same thing with God. There may be forgiveness, but there's consequences when we violate his ways. And God really winds it up with David here. He says, but you did this in secret. And some of the consequences of your secret sin are going to be public. They're going to be public. You did this in private. But the consequences of your sin and the dysfunction that's going to creep into your family as a result of your waywardness is going to be there for the whole nation to see. And if you're making notes, write down 2 Samuel chapter 16 because it happens exactly as the Lord says. We'll get to it when we do the week on Absalom. But as the, as the Lord says, I'm going to take, and your wives will sleep with other members of your family and do it in broad daylight. And it's exactly what Absalom does, as he does a power grab for the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 16. On, and on bad advice from his advisors. He grabs some of David's wives and concubines and sleeps with them on the rooftop in full view of all of the people. It's a shameful thing. But it's a consequence of what? Of David's sin. Sin has consequences. Verse 13. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. If you have a pen and you like writing in your Bible, just scribble that under, highlight that. That's it. We will read in Psalm 51 next week more of his explanation. But this is his immediate response to Nathan and to the Lord laying bare his heart I have sinned against the Lord. Contrast this with Saul. Um, if you remember, God gave Saul very strict instructions to go and wipe out people. We won't get into, the, you know, the benefits and, of all that. Well, benefits is the wrong word, but the requirements of all that kind of stuff this morning. He gave him very, very clear instructions, and Saul disobeyed God. And he came back, and he, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And Samuel meets him, and he's like, what happened? And what does Saul do? He blames his men. He starts with blame shifting, denying, justifying, reasoning excusing what he's done, blah, 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 it's a whole bunch of stuff. There's none of the, I have sinned against the Lord. It's all good reasons for why he did what he did. And David realizes, this is the miracle of grace at work in his life. He realizes what? I have sinned against the Lord. It's simple, it's clear, and it's true. There's no extra words needed necessarily. And guys, when conviction comes to bear in our lives, we would do well to just use this phrase. sinned against you, Lord. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to excuse it away. And I'm not going to grovel. I'm not going to say, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, now, watch me now. God, I could do it. No, you don't need to do all of that. What are you going to do? A simple admission and a confession. I have sinned against God. The Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin; you will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Job done. You only be Nathan that day. It's faithful. This is a complete side thing. But when God gives you eyes open to see the wanderings and the failings of your friends, who you love, it takes great courage to confront them and to call it what it is and to lead them to God's grace like a Nathan. And if you're not a Nathan, I want to encourage you to be more Nathan-like and to find Nathans in your life who have the guts to come to you and say, Hey. You are the man or the woman. You know what I mean? Nathan went home. What does he say? Those words that Nathan speaks to David after he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Friends, David deserved death for what he did. What his actions um, should have led to his execution. He deserved death. It's not just like it was a grievous thing. He deserved death. And what does God speak over his life? He says, you've been forgiven. He confesses, he repents before the Lord. And the Lord says, he's taken away your sin. You will not die. You won't get what you deserve. I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. I'm going to show you kindness and mercy and grace This is God. Listen to these two passages. I love these passages from Micah 7. From verse 18. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Dave read this earlier. Psalm 103 from verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, one of the truest things about you is this, that God has not dealt with you according to what you deserve. He has held back from you what you genuinely deserve. And instead, He has lavished on your life compassion, And grace, he has been slow to anger. He is always abounding in his faithful love. He will not always accuse you. He will not always be angry forever. Why? Because he dealt with our sins with his own son. And so you might sit here this morning feeling guilt-ridden or weighed down by shame or whatever or battling to shake that thing. The truth of the scriptures is that God is kinder to you than you deserve. And he has grace, 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 grace for those who repent. And if you have never encountered this, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like, I don't understand what the big deal is about Christianity. I mean, you're in a church this morning, so maybe you do. But maybe you've never fully understood this for yourself. You've never really experienced what it's like to be forgiven, to not have to barter with God, to not have to work your way into his good books. There's no working your way into anything. There's nothing. You don't add a single thing. God is not impressed by any of your good works. God's not impressed by anything that you add, you know, that you share on a Sunday morning. And look at you, you know. Wow. No, God's not impressed by that stuff. God is impressed by His Son. And His Son steps in your place. And it enables God to have this transaction with us where He puts our sin on His Son so that He can just treat us with mercy and grace and kindness. He has not dealt with us. As our sins deserve. David deserves death. And another dies in his place. I don't want to read too much into this. Some people don't see this in this text. And it's fine. I think it's theirs appointed to us. A son of David. A son of David dies in his place. To show us that one day. Another son of David would die for those who deserve death. So that they wouldn't get that. But they would know life eternal in his name. It's wired into this. That one son of David dies so that David goes free. To forecast the ultimate son of David. Who died in your place. That though you deserve in death, you and I deserve in death. We don't get it. We don't get we get life in the Son. And it should make your heart sing that God, you have not treated me according to my iniquities. You haven't, because you are a God of grace. There is no other God like you. There just isn't. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us, so how can we tell him the baby's dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to Each other he guessed that the baby was dead, so he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. So David got up from the ground, he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. Then David comforted his wife, his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And he sent a message through the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Have a look at David's actions here. And there's a lot that, we can, that can be said here. The one thing that I want to focus your attention on is how does David respond this news, this baby will die. The baby gets sick, takes a week and it dies. As this this week is going on, this baby being sick, what does David do? He fasts and he prays and he pleads with God to have mercy on the baby and mercy on David and to spare the baby's life. What you see happening in David's life here is he's learning something about the God who called him. He's learning that God deals in grace. He says, I thought that maybe God will have, have have mercy on me. Maybe God would be gracious to me. He's already experienced some of the grace of God, hasn't he? He deserved death. He didn't get that. Now the baby's going to get. Um, the baby's going to die. God has said that, but He knows. Hey, hey but this is a God of grace. Let me try. Let me try. He doesn't deserve grace. He doesn't deserve it. But he's he's asking. Guys, God is not a once-off grace giver. It's not like you burnt all your matches with him, and now you're to keep your nose clean, you keep it straight. David's learning, hey, you can't exhaust the grace of this God. He's already experienced it. Now the baby the God has said is going to die. What is he doing? He's still praying. Hey, maybe, maybe there's more grace. Maybe there's more grace. There wasn't. There wasn't, but David thinks maybe there will be because he's learning something about who God is like. And think of the grace in this whole mess here. This has been an absolute mess of a story, hasn't it? David committing sin, covering his tracks. The the stuff up with Uriah, then putting him to death, hiding from God. Now his repentance. What I want you to see here is the extravagant kindness of God. What happens? Baby dies and they get given another son. What does David do to deserve another son? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. God's extravagant kindness to David is that he gives him another son. And David is in some... Solomon um, is, is similar to the word for peace, shalom. His name Solomon means peace. A lot of people think that David called him Solomon because he felt at peace with God. God had forgiven him. God had done such an amazing work. He's like, I feel at peace with you now, God. There's no longer this thing. I've experienced grace. There's a peace. God sends word through Nathan to do what? To change that kid's name. Change that kid's name. You can call him Solomon. I'm going to call him what? Jedediah. Which means what? It means beloved of the Lord. It means beloved of the Lord. This is how kind God is. That this guy had committed such grievous sin. God gives him another kid and calls the kid what? Beloved of the Lord. So I love that boy. I think they called him Jedediah for multiple reasons. I think as Solomon grew up, word would get out and he would hear the story of how he came to be and all the flippin' remorse in his family. And maybe he wondered did they actually want me? Was I part of the plan? How do I fit in this whole thing? God's like, call that kid Jedediah. So when he grows up, he knows he is the beloved of the Lord. I love that boy. Because God still had stuff for Solomon to do. He didn't want to be defined by his parents' mistakes. Guys, you're not defined by the sin of others. You are a Jedediah. That's the message of the Scriptures. You are the beloved of the Lord. Not because you deserve it, but because that's God. He's the God of, of grace and multiple chances. Psalm 30 verse 4, sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. David experienced this. This is the psalm he wrote. There's weeping at night, there's joy in the morning. His anger lasts just a moment but his favor covers your entire life as we come to respond to God this morning I want to remind you of the words that Martin Luther said German theologian he said all of life all of life is of repentance all of life is of repentance this is the this is how we live We live repenting again and again of the waywardness of our hearts. And the scriptures remind us that it's what leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not how bad you feel about your sin that leads you to repentance. It's looking at the extravagant kindness and grace of God that leads you to not want to offend that God and to make everything right with him. God's kindness, guys, leads us to repentance. Not our self-improvement plans. None of that stuff. Just God's kindness. Let me read from 1 John before I pray for us. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. There is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with Jesus. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's two things that I want us to respond to God this morning. Again, the Holy Spirit's pressing your buttons. You know, there's an area of your life where you're not, yeah, you have not confessed things to the Lord. You are trying to hide um, secret sin, which is not working very well because there's not just thing as secret sin. God sees it. There's unspoken things between you and the Lord that's um, robbing your joy in your walk with Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to confess those things again to Him and to ask Him for uh, His forgiveness to wash over your your life this morning. And for us collectively to sit and celebrate the God of grace. The God of grace, the God who, who, who treats us way better than we possibly deserve. Who is through and through the God of grace and mercy. And that is the beloved of the Lord, we can go into the week rejoicing in that. It's like, Who is a God like you that would treat us like that? Man, we're not going to try our self righteous improvement plans. This is all we can do. We're going to soak our hearts in this message of grace again and again. Because that is what transforms us. And so let's do that again this morning. Father, we come. We come to you, we, we thank you that you see us and you know us. There's no hiding, there's no need to pretend, there's no, no need to polish ourselves up, pretty ourselves up for you. This is who we are and these are the things that we've done. We want to we collectively acknowledge and confess that we we have loved things other than you. Again and again and again. As it were, we've despised you and your ways. And we look to you for your mercy on us again. And say, so, Father, would you give us stronger desires for you and for your glory and your ways? Would you give us a deeper love for you, for obedience, for holiness, to treasure your commands, to treasure walking in the light, to walking in your ways and living lives that honor you and glorify you. As we look at our lives this morning, we thank you. We rejoice that the crushing weight of our sin is not ours to bear, but that it was borne by Jesus for us. That the Son of David died in our place, that we don't get what we deserve. We get mercy. And We rejoice in that this morning, and I pray, Father, For those who may be here this morning who've never experienced that, never rejoiced in the fullness of that, I pray for mercy to wash over their lives with the full force of what it's all about. And for those of us who love you and walk with you, help us, help us to do business with you in the areas of our lives where we need to confess and repent again and give us joy celebrating the richness of the grace of our God this morning.